The title of this evening's talk is Practice Here and There, Practice Everywhere. (coughs) So, here we are, coming to the end of our long uh, period of silent intensive retreat practice and soon to be uh, taking yourself, taking your practice out there, wherever there is for each of you. Which in fact for most of you will entail a much longer period of intensive practice with the possibility of wherever you go, wherever you are, There's your practice. I think that many of us um, come to the end of retreat with some thoughts and uh, feelings that aren't really so dissimilar to those we came into retreat with. For many people, there's a feeling of excitement and readiness to go into an extended period of intensive practice. And maybe just before it's time to enter in, there might be the feeling that, well, I'm really not quite finished uh, yet out here. I just need a few more days and maybe another week so I can do what needs to be done and and then I'll be ready to go into intensive retreat. And it seems that many of us have, or at least some of us, have similar thoughts when it's time to come out of retreat practice. An excitement, maybe an excitement and uh, varying degrees of readiness uh, to go out into the larger world. But there might also be some thoughts such as, well, I just need a little bit more time, maybe a few more days, maybe a a week, maybe a month, (laughs) to do what needs to be done in this retreat, and, and then I'll be finished. And then I'll be ready to come out of retreat and be ready to go back out there. Sometimes on either end, the going in and the coming out, there might be some degree of reluctance, some degree of resistance, maybe some fear of the unknown or fear of the seeming known. Maybe essentially just resistance to change, resistance in relationship to ending one way and entering into another way. For some, some of you, there may have been a kind of urgency before coming into retreat. You just can't wait. So ready to go into retreat. And then at the other end, maybe the same thing. Can't wait just so ready to get out of here. (laughs) To go back to my regular life. 
So you might check in, check in with yourself, and uh, uh, see if there are some of these same <clears throat> kinds of thoughts and feelings. Similar conditioned patterns within your mind and heart that are coming up now at the end uh, of this retreat that maybe you have experienced, maybe you experienced as you were preparing to come here, or maybe uh, that you experienced, uh, that you felt at the onset of this retreat, or maybe uh, also or during uh, the during the retreat as your practice showed up and changed in various ways. And of course, we might not feel any anxiety at all in either direction, entering into a retreat or coming out of a retreat. There's certainly the possibility that one might feel a clean, clear, open readiness and happiness without any particular expectations or worries about moving on to the next thing, moving on to the next phase and form that life will take. At a retreat that I uh, taught a number of years ago, one person described coming out of retreat uh, like she was feeling like she was descending, as she put it, like a plane descending and then landing. She said, feeling the force of gravity, kind of like coming back to earth. There's a beautiful piece that was written by the American astronaut Russell Swikert regarding his experience uh, in outer space. And I'd like to share, share this with you. You recall staring out there at the spectacle that went before your eyes because now you're no longer inside something with a window looking out at a picture. Now you're out there and there are no frames, there are no limits, there are no boundaries. You're really out there going 17,000 miles an hour ripping through space, a vacuum. And there's not a sound. There's a silence, the depth of which you've never experienced before. And that silence contrasts so markedly with the scenery you're seeing and with the speed with which you know you're moving. And you think about what, you've exper- what you're experiencing and why. Do you deserve this fantastic experience? Have you earned this in some way? Are you separated out to be touched by God, to have some special experience that others can't have? And you know the answer to that is no. There's nothing you've done to deserve this, to earn this. It's not a special thing for you. You know very well at that moment, and it comes through to you so powerfully that you're a sensing element for humans. You look down and see the surface of that globe that you've lived on all this time, and you know all those people down there. And they are like you. They are you. And somehow you represent them. You are up here as a sensing element, that point out on the end, and that's a humbling feeling. 
It's a feeling that says you have a responsibility. It's not just for yourself. The mind, the heart, that doesn't see, doesn't do justice to the body. That's why it's there. That's why you're out there. And somehow you recognize that you're a piece of this total life. And you're out there on that forefront and you have to bring it back somehow. And that becomes a rather special responsibility. And it tells you something about your relationship with this thing we call life. So that's a change. That's something new. And when you come back, there's a difference in that world now. There's a difference in that relationship between you and that planet and you and all those other forms of life on that planet because you've had that kind of experience. It's a difference and it's so precious. And of course, there is a change. And so reflecting on the supports available to you as we begin to make this change out of retreat life into life in the larger world. One change being the pace of life, at least outwardly. Life appears to and feels like it moves a lot faster outside of intensive retreat. And yet we're supported as we move into a larger world with some understanding from our weeks of practice of how quickly and how incessantly things change within our own body and mind. How quickly and incessantly things change all around us even in the slow pace of retreat life. This understanding, this wisdom is a great support and a great protection as we make this change from retreat practice to practice in the world. Reconnecting with a larger world in the day-to-dayness and the moment-to-momentness, in the incessant and often fast-paced changes that happen in our daily life. And we've practiced with And we've had some taste of the impersonality of change. And we've tasted that we can't really stop change. And that even though we try, we can't hold on to anything. And maybe we've tasted how unpleasant and maybe painful it is to try. As concentration and mindfulness have developed... Over these weeks, we've had some glimpse that whatever it is that we experience in the body, mind, and heart, that any of these experiences come together because of myriad causes and conditions. In truth, an unfathomable number of conditions coalescing in that moment. And then it whatever it is, can change quite quickly or just simply disappear. These tastes, this 
understanding has a deep and beneficial effect on how we think about things, how we relate in the world. There's more clarity in relationship to our deepest goals and aspirations and what we choose to do or not do. There's more clarity in relationship to the choices we make. More connection and clarity in relationship to others. More clarity in what's important and appropriate. What's wholesome and what's really, truly respectful and kind. These tastes, this understanding, is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect to a larger world. Here in retreat, life is pared down. A life of much more simplicity than most of us have outside a retreat. So this is another change from here to there. Life in retreat offers really very little outside distraction. We sit, we walk, we eat, you do your yogi job, we sleep, you meet with me every few days, talking just a little during that time. Day in and day out. Within this container of Simplicity, you've been supported to mindfully pay attention to what occurs in the body, the heart, and the mind, and been invited to sense, to see, and to know. Is the mind, is the heart opening to, connecting with, and receiving what is, or is it disconnected, separated? With all of this practice and learning bringing us closer to seeing and knowing what brings suffering and what brings ease, calm, joy, balance, and a sense of well-being. We're learning to recognize, respect, and care about all of these cycles within our mind, our heart, and body. This seeing and knowing is also a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world. We're all really so similar, no matter who we are, no matter where and how we live, our culture, our age, our ethnic background, our color. We're really, all of us, just variations on themes. We're all totally interconnected, totally interdependent on this small planet that we all share. Sila, virtue, living ethically, respectfully, living harmlessly, wends its way into being the ground 
of our life quite naturally as our understanding of what brings suffering and what brings ease deepens and blossoms in our heart. As we come to see and know this through intensive practice, it affects how we communicate, how we use language. It affects our actions and affects how we think. Seeing into our own heart and mind affects and informs the motivation behind the words and the actions that we take out in the world. And some words from the Buddha regarding this. The thought manifests as the word. The word manifests as the deed. The deed develops into habit. And habit hardens into character. So watch the thought and its ways with care and let it spring from love born out of concern for all beings. The possibility of maybe engaging the refuges and the precepts as part of our daily practice. For instance, maybe beginning our day chanting them to ourselves. This can be a powerful aspect of encouraging the purification of our thoughts and our words and our actions. There's a particular rendition of the precepts that I offered the morning after the presidential election that was uh, written by Stephanie Kaza from the Green Gulch Zen Farm. And I'd like to share this with you again because it really is particularly relevant and really a good reminder in relationship to daily life in the larger world. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow not to kill. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not take what is not given. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not engage in abusive relationships. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak falsely or deceptively. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harm self or others through poisonous thought or substance. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not dwell on past errors. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not speak of self separate from others. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not possess anything or form of life selfishly. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not harbor ill will toward any plant, animal, or human being. Knowing how deeply our lives intertwine, we vow to not abuse the great truth of the three treasures. The three treasures being the Buddha, the Dhamma, and the Sangha.
For me, as I'm sure also for uh, many of you, over my years of practice in the simplicity of a retreat setting, I've been inspired and uh, motivated to simplify my own life, to live my daily life in uh, ways that serve, that support this process of the purification of the heart and mind, which is intimately related to the development of concentration and to the process of liberation. And sometimes this happens through conscious intention to let go of particular habits of distraction. And as practice deepens, there's more and more often a letting go, a simplification that unfolds quite naturally with no feeling of forcing anything. We more and more easily and naturally relinquish the habits and the distractions of our life that don't serve this awakening process that we've committed ourselves to. And very often it's around quite ordinary, very mundane aspects of our life. An example that I uh, often offer is that there was a time in my life when I would get into my car and I would automatically turn on the radio or plug in a CD. And at some point, uh, but mostly it was about turning on the radio years ago, (laughs) at some point I began to uh, notice, notice it as a distraction. And so I made a conscious decision to not turn it on all the time. And I'd begin driving somewhere and on my hand, this is not an exaggeration, my hand would automatically begin to move towards the radio knob. The force of habit is incredibly strong. And so mindfully I'd bring my hand back down. And at some point with this practice, I began to notice the thought to turn on the radio. And then the choice was available much more clearly to or not to. Looking at uh, another change in this simple and a simple quiet of retreat, there maybe have been some big days for you, some big events for you. And maybe an especially uh, big day or big event uh, for you in this retreat might have been something as totally mundane as the hotel or personal laundry day. For me, there were times uh, in the earlier years of my intensive practice when laundry day was such a huge addition to my day at times that I would find myself planning for it or thinking about it. Like I was lying in my bed trying to go to sleep and I would be thinking and planning about the laundry day the next day. And then, and then the next morning, the, probably the first thing that would come into my mind when I woke up was laundry day and what I was supposed to do and had to do. And 
And I suspect some of you might know what I'm talking about. (laughs) And how about the big event of the midday meal? It could be a huge event every day. What will we have for lunch today? Or in the midst of eating today's lunch, I wonder what we'll have for lunch tomorrow. (laughs) Or... Should I get a second helping or a third? I wonder if there's enough there for me. And on and on. How about the event of having a one-on-one practice meeting? That can sometimes be a big event. Rehearsing. Should I say, should I not say, etc. There's a a little poem by, uh, written by Nanao Sakaki, who was a wandering Japanese uh, Buddhist poet who died around eight or nine years ago. And he calls it a big day. Getting water at the spring, carrying firewood, chattering with the neighbor, the sun goes down, a big day. Many years ago, Nanao used to spend some time up at the Lama Foundation, which is about 30 minutes from here. And he'd show up at Lama with his uh, small knapsack and a sleeping bag, and he'd stay there for uh, just a couple of days. They were always very happy to put him up. And then he'd head out into the mountains uh, with just his knapsack and sleeping bag, nothing more that he than he'd arrived with. And often he would be gone for a week or two or maybe even a little bit longer. And then he'd be back at Lama again. A dear friend of mine who <clears throat> uh, was the coordinator for the Lama Foundation uh, during those years told me a story of one of these times when Nanao uh, had come in for a day or two from the mountains. And he asked her, and another friend if they would like to come out to his camp uh, for dinner in a few days. And my friend said this was really uh, something really quite special, something that had uh, never before been offered. So on the appointed uh, day, my friend uh, and the other invitee found their way out to Nanao's camping spot by following his careful directions. And when they got there, Nanao was there, but there wasn't. Uh, there was no food ready or in view for dinner. And he had told them not to bring anything with them, that it wouldn't be necessary, that there was plenty of food. Well, my friend said that they thought maybe they'd made a mistake, that maybe this was the wrong day. But Nanao was very delighted to see them, and he welcomed them heartily, and he said, Okay, well, now let's go out and find dinner. And my friend said they walked and they picked and they dug various wild foods. And then they came back and they built a fire and cooked what needed cooking. And she said they had an incredibly delicious dinner. And she said they finally understood how Nanao could go out into the mountains for days or sometimes weeks and with almost nothing and come back strong healthy and happy. (coughs) 
Once someone in an interview spoke about the simplicity of retreat, uh, life on retreat is having a very good, good taste, she said. She said, we taste this good taste, and then we take this good taste with us. It wends its way into our life in many small and maybe also some big ways. Life outside of retreat can be quite complex at times. Our home life, our family life, our community life, our work life. And yet there are ways that we can let go of some of the complexity And we often do this little by little as our practice deepens in and out of retreat. We make choices in relationship to the work that we do, in the way that we spend time with a partner, a family, community members, friends. We make choices in how we spend our free time. We truly have the possibility of simplifying, at least to some degree, every aspect of our life. We truly have the possibility of deepening this good taste that we take with us from the simplicity of retreat life. And of course, there are some complex responsibilities and commitments that we have to continue with. The taste of simplicity in retreat has another very beneficial uh, effect on our life outside of retreat. It affects and it inspires the way that we expend our energy, what we put our energy towards, how we use our energy, even in the midst of complex activity and relationships and responsibilities. From our experience in retreat practice, we learn, we see, we come to know more and more clearly when we're off balance in the ways that we engage and use our energy. And we take this knowing into our life outside of retreat. As we intuitively, naturally find ourselves letting go of old habits, old habituated, unskillful ways of being and doing, we find ourselves connecting with more skillful, more wholesome ways of being and doing. And we begin to feel more balance within ourselves and within our life as a whole. We find that, in fact, we have more energy and more time available for our life to more directly and more clearly be our practice. So simplicity inwardly and outwardly in times of retreat and as we reconnect to a larger world. Simplicity really being a great support and a great protection here and out there. A great support and a great protection everywhere along this step-by-step journey. 
considering our whole life as our practice, how can we develop and deepen our practice in the midst of our everyday lives? Really a most essential and important question. And of course the essential ground of this is that we develop, that we integrate a clear and focused attention and mindful awareness based in kindness into all dimensions of our being. Our work, our play, our creative endeavors are all part of our practice. And we can also, we can find many moments throughout our day when we can just simply bring our attention to the sensations of the breath in almost any circumstance, in almost any activity. And maybe just for a moment or two. From this perspective then, it's really not so different from our practice in a retreat setting. Really all of the conditions and all of the relationships in our lives are wonderful mirrors for our practice. The joys and the irritations, the annoyances and the delights, the frustrations and the satisfactions, the likes and the dislikes. All that we experience in life in retreat and life outside of retreat. All of it mirrors for our practice. A woman who sat a retreat that I taught in Israel uh, a number of years ago now, and who had long before I met her lived in a spiritual community in France that was guided by the philosopher and spiritual teacher Gurdjieff. She told me a story uh, from that time in her life that's a wonderful mirror uh, of a particular and difficult life situation being the perfect practice. She said that in this community in France where she lived there was an old man who was a very difficult irascible fellow she said. She said he was quite messy and argumentative. He wouldn't cooperate He wouldn't help with things, and basically he didn't get along with others in the community. She said that no one liked him very much, and he himself didn't seem to uh, like uh, the other people in the community very much either. He tried for a long time, she said, to stay in the community, but it was um, very difficult for him as well as difficult for the other people. So difficult that he finally left and he went to Paris. He just couldn't bear it anymore. Well, Gurdjieff followed him to Paris, and he tried to convince this man to return to the community. But the man said, no, he couldn't. He said it was just much too hard to be there. So after a bit of back and forth between the man and Gurdjieff, Gurdjieff offered him a monthly stipend to come, to come back to the community which the man couldn't refuse because he was a very poor person. And so he returned. And when he arrived, this woman said that everyone in the community was aghast. (laughs) (laughs) 
And they were even more aghast when they found out that he was being paid to be there. (laughs) Because they themselves actually had to pay to live in this community. So she said Gurdjieff called a meeting. And he listened to everyone's complaints. And she said then he just laughed. And he said, this man is yeast for your bread. Without him you would never learn about anger, irritability, patience, the heart of unconditional kindness and compassion. That's why you pay me and I pay him. The conditions in our lives, the people in our lives, they're all, all of it's part of our practice. It's all yeast for our bread. Yeast for the purification of our heart and mind. Yeast for our awakening. Yeast for our liberation. There's one teaching among the 84,000, it's said that the Buddha offered, 84,000 teachings, where the Buddha uses the metaphor of a mother who has four sons for the development and the flowering of the four divine abidings, metta, karuna, mudita, and upekka, unconditional kindness, compassion, empathetic joy, and equanimity. And each of the sons because of his particular age, personality, and particular karmic manifestations, calls forth from the mother one of these four divine abidings. Well, I only have three sons, but they've managed to be some of my strongest teachers in many, many ways over the years. Our closest people can often be some of our best teachers. Just simply through them being who they are. What they need from us and what they give to us, what they show us. So, a personal example. My two oldest sons, who are now 51 years old, are identical twins. And they continue, after all these years, to show me a relationship that is very rare. They're each other's best friends. And although when they were little boys, uh, they would fight with each other as children do. But over all of these years, they've really never talked about each other or to each other in judgmental or negative ways. They never put each other down no matter what one or the other is feeling, no matter what one or the other has done or not done, no matter how the other's life is going, and they certainly have each been through many ups and downs in their lives. And they're not each other's keeper. They've really never been disrespectful or codependent with each other through all of their comings and goings and ups and downs. I think this is really quite a rare friendship and sometimes I'm in awe of it and I learn from it. Every aspect of life 
is potentially a teaching. Every aspect of life has the potential to reveal the truth to us. In some words from the Buddha, as a bee seeks nectar from all kinds of flowers, seek teachings everywhere. Like a deer that finds a quiet place to graze, seek seclusion to digest all that you have gathered. And a poem that's uh, been translated from the Turkish. Uh, the poem is by Edip Kansever. I'm not sure I pronounce it properly. Kansever or something like that. And it was translated by Richard Tillinghast. And the poem is called Table. A man filled with the gladness of living put his keys on the table put flowers in a copper bowl there. He put his eggs and milk on the table. He put there the light that came in through the window, sound of a bicycle, sound of a spinning wheel, the softness of bread and weather he put there. On the table, the man put things that had happened in his mind. What he wanted to do in life, he put that there. Those he loved, those he didn't love. The man put them on the table too. Three times three make nine. The man put nine on the table. He was next to the window, next to the sky. He reached out and placed on the table endlessness. So many days he had wanted to drink a beer. He put on the table the pouring of that beer. He placed there his sleep and his wakefulness, his hunger and fullness he placed there. Now that's what I call a table. It didn't complain at all about the load. It wobbled once or twice, then stood firm. The man kept piling things on. Letting go. the key to the door, the linchpin for the wheel of the cart that turn by turn by turn moves along this sacred noble path. This is the first and the the wheel and the linchpin is first and foremost a focused, concentrated attention that is well grounded in mindfulness and kindness. And as some of you have mentioned, there's some change in the depth and the sustaining quality of the focusing power of the mind that you've developed over these weeks. A change from how it is in a retreat such as this, as we connect with the larger world. And it's true that there is some change in the depth and sustaining quality of mindfulness from how it is in a retreat such as this, as we connect with the larger world. 
And although the same degree and depth of concentration and mindfulness is not usually totally sustained outside of the retreat setting, the concentration and mindfulness capacities that you've developed along with the multidimensional facets <coughs> facets of understanding of wisdom that have blossomed for each of you in this retreat all of this is a great support and a great protection as we reconnect with the larger world there's a change yes but we don't lose it mindfulness and concentration and the continued blossoming of wisdom are always available for us. Many years ago at a two-month retreat uh, that I sat with one of my Burmese teachers, Sayada Upandita, and two other Burmese monks, I had a very brief conversation at the end of this two months with one of the monks. And I asked him, if there was any advice that he might uh, give me around, around me taking uh, practice into the whole of my life. And this was his response. He said, you need to eat to stay alive and be healthy. You need to sleep to stay alive and be healthy. And you need to meditate to stay alive and be healthy. That was what he said. I thought it was pretty good advice. I've never forgotten it. And it was long, many years ago. In terms of integrating your practice of a relaxed and focused mindful attention, uh, integrating it more and more into your life, there are some particular ways that I and others have found to be quite helpful in bringing a simple and yet direct and immediate concentrated mindful attention into our lives. One suggestion from uh, a Dhamma teacher friend is that at the end of each hour of the day, take one or two minutes to just stop and be still and simply connect with the breath at the Anapana spot, at the touching point for one or two minutes. So however long your waking day is, that could be a 15 or 30 minutes of a very directly focused mindful time with each of these minutes then having an effect on the moments that follow. Another way to, in a very simple way, to carry practice into our daily lives is to remember at moments during the day to touch into the physical sensations through contact that we experience all the time. So the feet on the ground, your bottom touching a chair, your hands touching each other, your arms and hands touching. And I could name many more possibilities. The sensation of the clothes and the body touching. Many, many possibilities. Mindfulness and concentration are immediately connected with and strengthened every single time we do this. I think the only hard thing about doing these very brief 
meditations, if you will, is just to remember to do them. I know some people who put little notes to themselves around their home or in their workplace to remind themselves to check in. So, for instance, a note on the bathroom mirror that says, breath. Maybe a little stand-up note on your desk at home or at work that says, still breathing, or metta, now. When I was the resident teacher at the Insight Meditation Society, there was a fellow who worked in the front office who had a small stand-up note on his desk that said, buttocks, (laughs) reminding him to bring his attention to the touch points on his bottom at the chair and the chair every now and then. The former uh, director of the Forest Refuge, uh, which is the long-term practice center at the Insight Meditation Society, uh, uh, had programmed his computer to sound a mindfulness bell every 45 minutes. And that would remind him to just, at that time, he would just stop whatever he was doing and mindfully take a few breaths. And I discovered this because I was in a meeting with him and the mindfulness bell went off and we stopped our meeting, stopped talking, we breathed, we noticed our breath and then we went back to our meeting. I thought it was brilliant. Excellent idea. Walking meditation can be a very important and powerful aspect of our practice in the world. An important aspect of continuing to connect and to strengthen concentration and mindfulness. I mean, many of us walk at least a few miles just going from place to place, from here to there, if not in a day, certainly through a week. And we can make some of this walking a time for practice, consciously. When I lived at uh, IMS as a resident teacher for staff, my workroom and my living space was up on the second floor of the main building. And because I, I had so many practice meetings with staff and I also had lots of other meetings, I really didn't have uh, time during the day to do a period of walking meditation. So at one point I decided that every time I went up and down the stairs, uh, I would make it my walking practice time. And so most days I did this. At one point uh, a staff member came in for his practice meeting with me and he was obviously quite agitated and uh, with difficulty he told me uh, that he was quite upset, he said, because I was ignoring him. He said he felt abandoned by me. He said that whenever he passed me on the stairs I wouldn't even look at him and he was wondering if I was angry with him. So I told him that um, I was, when I was going up and down the stairs that was my walking meditation practice time and I was doing it as, with all my heart and mind as best I could and that I certainly had not abandoned him nor was I angry with him. It's just as the, that I was practicing as deeply as I was able to going up and down the stairs. Well, of course, this completely changed his attitude. And he said that he was very happy for me and he told me what a great idea it was. People may not always understand what you're up to 
when you integrate your practice into your life in small ways. Do it anyways. Use your life wisely. And it's really helpful to connect with others who practice, as many of you know. We can certainly see and feel the benefit of this, as some of you have mentioned, in a retreat setting. So if you're not connected, with, at least sometimes, with a group, even just a group of maybe one or two, to sit with once in a while, check in and see if there's a sitting group in your area. And if not, start one. Which might mean just asking one or two other people that you know who meditate or who might be interested in learning to meditate to come and meet together once a week or every other week. And you can sit together, you can listen to something, uh, read something out loud, listen to a tape or a CD, uh, have some discussion about what, what's being read if you decide to read something or listen to something. Take turns doing this, organizing it each time you meet. And it can be very helpful. The Buddha, in a conversation with Ananda, who was one of his chief disciples, spoke about the tremendous importance of the connection with spiritual friends. And so the Venerable Ananda, in speaking with the Buddha, said this, Half this holy life, O Lord, is good and noble friends, companionship with the good, association with the good. And the Buddha responded to Ananda by saying, Do not say that, Ananda. It's the whole of this holy life, this friendship, companionship, and association with the good. Use your life wisely. Use your energy wisely. Let every moment as much as possible be a conscious conscious intent to practice. Meditation is one of the greatest arts in life, maybe actually the greatest. And it can take place anytime, anywhere, when we have the intention to live awake. As we go out into the larger world, if we're patient and determined in our practice, it's inevitable that calm, tranquility, and joy will increase. It's inevitable that peace increases, that wisdom increases. It's inevitable that our ability to live a beneficial and a compassionate life increases. And another little poem from Nanao Sakaki. If you have time to chatter, read books. If you have time to read, walk into the mountain, desert, and ocean. If you have time to walk, sing songs and dance. If you have time to dance, sit quietly, you happy, lucky idiot.
So I'm closing the talk this evening with a poem and then some words from the Buddha. And this is a poem by the Native American poet Joy Harjo. She calls it Eagle Poem. To pray, you open your whole self to sky, to earth, to sun, to moon, to one whole voice that is you, and know there is more that you can't see, can't hear, can't know, except in moments steadily growing and in languages that aren't always sound, but other circles of motion. Like eagle that Sunday morning over Salt River, circled in blue sky, in wind, swept our hearts clean with sacred wings. We see you, see ourselves, and know that we must take the utmost care and kindness in all things. Breathe in, knowing we are made of all this, and breathe, knowing we are truly blessed, because we were born and die soon within a true circle of motion, like eagle rounding out the morning inside us. We pray that it will be done in beauty, in beauty. And some words from the Buddha. Yogis, meditators, bhikkhus, mindfulness with breathing, anapanasati, that one has developed and made makes much of, has great fruit and benefit. Even I myself, before awakening, when not yet enlightened, while still a bodhisattva, a Buddha-to-be, lived in this dwelling, this way of life, for the most part. When I lived mainly in this dwelling, the body was not stressed, the eyes were not strained, and my mind was released from the asavas, from the hindrances and unwholesome states, through non-attachment. For this reason, should anyone wish, may my body not be stressed, may my eyes not be strained, may my mind be released from the asava through non-attachment, then that person ought to attend carefully in his heart or her heart and mind to this mindfulness of breathing meditation. And let's sit quietly for just a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.